Hey, it's Ross from Reversing Climate Change. I wanted to let you know that we have a new podcast called Carbon Removal Newsroom. It's short form, it's timely, and it's all about carbon removal. Whenever we see a good news story about carbon removal, or that should be about carbon removal, we're going to record a short episode about it with a rotating cast of guests. So please subscribe to Carbon Removal Newsroom, check it out in your podcast app of choice, and thank you so much for your support. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospin. Again, no Paul. Paul, we need you. Get out here. I've been taking over your duties, but it's going okay. We are in Kansas. We are in Wichita. We've had a great time uh, the last couple of days. Been a bit of a marathon though. It has. We're here just wrapping up at the No-Till on the Plains Conference. I've had White Stripes Seven Nation Army stuck in my head. Yeah, I'm kind of sick of that, actually. Seven Nation Army can't hold me back. Here we are in Wichita. But <laughs> this is this is a lucky one for you listeners because we did not have this on the books and we met this guy yesterday and I had heard of him. And then as we heard him talk, we're like, Ross and I sort of looked at each other. He's like, we got to get this guy on the podcast. Not only because he has very interesting things to say, he has an incredibly important perspective and message that we want to help amplify very much where you just get chills. It's like, yeah, we're on the same team. Like, let's make this happen. So without any further ado, sitting to my left is Dan Kitteridge. He is the founder and executive director of Bionutrient Food Association. He is also a farmer, which gives him, I guess, a couple more levels of credibility to talk about the things he's going to talk about. Dan, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you on here. Um, we like to start with people's story, really, how they got to where they are today, how they got to caring about reversing climate change. So where did it all begin for you? Thank you for having me on. It was great to meet you guys, too. I've been hearing about Nori for years now and uh, almost entirely good things. So I'm really glad to have the opportunity here. Flattery works. Well, no, it's sorry, just a simple fact. <laughs> some people you hear good things about and some people you don't hear good things about. And I've been hearing good things about you guys. So my background is as an organic farmer. I grew up on an organic farm in Massachusetts. My parents bought a 30-acre piece of property, a couple acres of open field and a bunch of rocks and woods and swamp and built a passive solar house in 1981 with a root cellar and a wood stove. And we were basically you know, not off the grid, but very much back to the land kind of homesteader-like. Uh, so, I like to say I grew up more Amish than English, as the Amish would say, in my personal experience. My parents, like many farmers, were unable to make a living farming. And so, their day job was and still is running an organization called NOFA, Northeast Organic Farming Association. They, you know, helped write some of the first organic standards in the 80s. They've been running the conferences and editing the newspapers and running the organization for more than 30 years now. So my background is really as an organic farmer, not just as a farmer, but also in the movement. They ran the organization out of our house and still do. So I came at it from that lens of growing up on a farm. We had a milk cow. We had you know our own pigs and chickens and turkeys and orchard and vegetables and started a farmer's market and sold, you know, started a CSA and sold to health food stores and and all that kind of stuff. And that was the that was the basically the profession that I had through college into my 20s. When I got married, I had not found any other lifestyle that I found more attractive and more I thought appropriate for raising children. I thought children should be able to be out in land and nature and 
exposed to all that kind of stuff. And I don't really like answering to anybody. And I like working with living things. And so I said, okay, I'm going to try, try to be a farmer. Um, I had done various things. I worked for political campaigns. I was a 9-11 truth activist. I was part of the global anti-GMO campaign. I spent a couple of winters up in the Himalayas. You know, I did a bunch of various things in the winter times, but I was a farmer for paying the bills. When it came down to actually trying to pay the bills, I realized that I couldn't, like a lot of farmers, make enough money to provide for a family. And what I came to for why I couldn't was because my plants were sick. I tell us, you know, a little anecdote when I'm teaching courses now about the insight when it really hit me. I was walking across our driveway with a five-gallon bucket in my hand. I was going to knock Colorado potato beetle larvae off the potato plants into the bucket to keep the potato plants alive. And I was checking on our old farm dog, Stuball, who had his rear end run over by a CSA member and ground into the driveway. And he had a sort of an open wound and I was just checking on it. It would have been a couple of days and there were some uh, maggots in the wound eating the dead flesh, which is nature's way of cleaning a wound. I didn't know that. I almost lost my breakfast. But it really struck me that larvae eating my dog was almost more than I could handle. But larvae eating my plants, I was so inured to, I just considered it to be no big deal. One could argue that being eaten alive by the larvae of insects is a sign of poor health. But that never really crossed my mind in all the 20 years of farming I'd been doing at that point. You know, you could argue that a flesh-eating fungus, a systemic staph infection, would be considered to be a sign of poor health if you were raising chickens and they were being eaten alive by staph. You would not be honorable or appropriate <laughs> to slaughter those chickens and sell them to your customers. And yet, powdery mildew was regularly eating our cucumbers and squash alive, etc. So, you can basically see this as going. I had to, you know, come to terms with the fact that as far as I was concerned, nature was telling me that my plants weren't healthy. And that really connected to poor economic viability. Um, and um, so there's a real visceral visceral incentive is where I came at it from. How can I make my plants more healthy so I can make a living? I had been brought up in the organic world. I you know, was pretty well versed with what was known about best practices. I was Im implementing them and still not getting what I would consider to be good results. So I set about doing study and reading books and going to conferences and attending seminars and practicing winter study, summer practice. And it took very little time to get to a point where the diseases disappeared, the insects disappeared, the yields went up, the cost of production went down, shelf life improved, flavor and aroma improved, soil structure improved. So I had this visceral experience of saying, oh my God, when you do a better job working with nature, all these synergistic feedback loops begin to occur. It's a, not a double bottom line or triple bottom line. It's a, like an octuple bottom line of synergies. And so I figured if I grew up on an organic farm and my parents were an organic farming organization, and I didn't know any of this stuff, then maybe this wasn't necessarily well known out there. And I almost had an obligation to start talking about it, even though I knew enough to know I didn't really know that much. And so I started giving workshops at conferences and started those started turning into you know, half-day presentations and then to full-day courses and then multiple-day courses. And it ended up basically turning into a, an educational organization. And so in 2010, we established the Bionutrient Food Association, which is an educational nonprofit whose mission is to increase quality in the food supply. We understand that there's a pretty profound decrease in nutritional value in food as documented by the USDA, any number of other you know, national agencies in Europe and Asia, et cetera, which happens to correlate with increases in what we now call conventional ag, correlate with 
increases in degenerative disease, chronic illness, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, whatever, all those diseases which are managed but not cured by the quote-unquote medical system, also correlates with increased carbon in the atmosphere, all kinds of you know dead zones in the oceans and pollution of the aquifers. There's a really beautiful opportunity, as I see it, to do agriculture more well and systemically address a bunch of what appear to be sort of intransigent systemic issues that we're struggling with culturally. So there's a long story. I can keep going if you want, but that's where it started. No, that's that's amazing. I think there's there's a lot to to pick up there. As I was hearing you talk, it brought to mind the dinner that we were at last night with No Till, where you know, I mean, here we are in the Midwest, and you think this is really the basket of America where all the food is produced, but it's actually oftentimes quite the food desert. And because you see people grow corn and they grow soybeans and maybe they grow wheat, but that's basically it. And uh, it was really great to hear a story from. A uh, husband and wife, and the wife was a nurse, and the nurse decided that she wanted to plant a one-acre garden and a vegetable garden and was producing all this amazing food. And it was kind of interesting. She's like, yeah, this isn't organic, but I know how my food was grown, and it was great. And it kind of – I'm deciding whether we want to get into the spicy organic question now or later. And I think I want to get there now. <laughs> I, it was also on my mind. Great. So, so, so maybe, maybe we start with that. But before that, you also – well, just so you know, Dan, we hate acronyms and you use CSA. So that's uh, Community Supported Agriculture Sorry. for all of you out there who don't know what a CSA is, go join one. It's a great way to support your local farmer and really know where your food comes from, which kind of that's the kicker here. Know where your food comes from. You are what you eat. Um, and it's important to think about that. But organics. Okay. You know, been to enough farmer conferences now where there's this slide getting passed around and it's like a soccer mom going through the grocery store with her kid. Oh, and I've seen that stock image many times. Stock, yeah. stock image, label fatigue, like organic is good. Just buy organic. Is organic always good? What is the dark side of organic? <laughs> <laughs> different people have different colored skin, different genders. You know, they're allowed to say certain things. I'm a, I'm a white male, so I can't say a lot of things. But I did grow up on an organic farm, and my parents do run an organic farming organization. So I feel like I've got a certain. <laughs> You're allowed to dish on this. I can, I can, I can, I can speak about organic um, with some with some perspective. You know, I think the impetus behind the organic movement was very much honorable and coming from a, an appropriate place. A pushback against, you know, what was at that point relatively new: this chemical system, and it was tied up with back to the land. And you know, after the you know the '60s sort of pushback against the militarist system, a, a different model of life and community and culture, you know, moving more towards what we think is perhaps more harmonious and, and multiple levels. But in many cases, it was professionally trained, you know, relatively privileged people who didn't necessarily have a lot of experience farming who were taking it on. And That's the back to the land side of it, right? <clears throat> yeah. Well, but, but the whole organic movement, I think, initially started out with people who were not necessarily connected to their indigenous forebears. They had been removed from the land by a couple generations through education and universities and professional careers and things like that. Those, The wisdom that had been passed on through the generations had been broken, and they didn't necessarily know what they were doing. A lot of that sort of just muscle memory knowledge wasn't there. And, you know, there was a, it was an obvious pushback against the chemicals. I mean, my father literally wrote one of the first organic, was on the committee for NOFA that helped write one of the first organic standards in the country. And I remember asking him a few years ago, I said, you know, why did you guys have it be a process standard instead of a quality standard? 
why was it a series of actions as opposed to a result? And, you know, there's a, there's a deeper conversation here, which we don't necessarily need to get into. But the idea was that if you grow plants more well, then they're better, they're more nutritious. And the reason that they didn't establish a quality standard that, you know, to check to see how good the crops actually were was because A, we didn't have one, and B, there was no way to test, there was no easy way to assess quality. And so they just reverted to thou shalt not use synthetic materials, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a practice basis. It's a practice basis, right, as a lot of the regenerative standards are now, which the same critique applies as far as I'm concerned to the regenerative community, which is a bunch of people who really mean well, who don't know what they're talking about, who have an impulse, which is well-founded, but without deeper knowledge and proper assessment capacities, it's a big fad that might just be co-opted and, and everything else. Yeah, so organic, it's based on something and it started building. It was grassroots. It was great. And it was a threat to the system, as it were. And so the government, as a lackey of the system, came in and took it over. And at this point, the vast majority of crops that are being sold under the organic label are being produced in a very unorganic, quote unquote, way, if depending on how you define the term. Mass production, monoculture, heavy tillage, lots of fertilizer, you know, organic fertilizer, organic insecticides, organic fungicides, nutritional values that are relatively similar to conventional crops. We can say with some confidence that the toxin levels in organic crops are lower. We can say GMOs are not present. We can say, you know, things like that. There's the bad stuff is less. But the point from our perspective is it's about the quality. It's about the good stuff being more that's what people really want. So we should be humble about what's going on. We should be honest about what's going on. We should be transparent about what's going on and say that most organic food nutritionally is similar to most conventional food. There are some organic farmers who are doing a great job. Oftentimes, they're smaller scale, not always. There are some conventional farmers who are doing a great job nutritionally, and some of them are decent sized. So our position at the Bionutrient Food Association is that the nutritional value of the food is a great point to assess from. And we think it correlates to the carbon sequestration. We think it correlates to, you know, food being medicine, healing you, healing your children, etc. But it doesn't necessarily correlate with an organic label or with a local label or with a permaculture or a biodynamic or slow food or Western price or whatever other kind of a label you want to associate with your product, your crop, your food doesn't necessarily correlate with nutritional value. And so that's what we're trying to do with the organization is bring forth this transparent empirical assessment capacity and give consumers the ability to go right past the label to the actual quality of the food. Yeah, I'm someone that uh, would definitely look for the label. Mass Society has a lot of information that you're required to process very quickly, make snap judgments, living in society above Dunbar's number. Uh, you don't always necessarily know your neighbor. You don't necessarily always know the farmer. What's Dunbar's number, Ross? Yeah, I don't know that one either. Oh, it's a anthropological concept about the number of people that you can like actually know in some important way okay. and hold accountable by informal norms. Yeah. That whole thing. So we're, we're way, way, way above that. And if you're trying to keep track of where your food comes from, especially given how dispersed the economy is and, and the food you eat might be produced in God knows how many counties or countries. And it's quite hard to do. So if you could just slap a nice little label on there that's shorthand for this is okay to consume, there's something appealing about that. But once it's in place, it seems that it's ossified, that people stop thinking about it. They have been given permission to no longer think about it. And they're there's another frontier out there, and that's about the actual nutrient density of the food, and that's not being measured by the existing standards. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what we have been championing 
you know, for at least a decade now. I certainly, when I first started learning about these things, I said, well, what's the word for this quality thing? And there wasn't even a concept. I mean, there wasn't even a word for it. It wasn't really even in the consciousness of the conversation. There was just people weren't talking about it overtly. So, I mean, there's a few of us that started using the term nutrient density, and it seems to have caught on at this point. Like organic, you know, organic used to mean contains carbon. It still does in some circles. Nutrient density already means something in food science, which is not what we're talking about it here to mean, but it's the word people are throwing around. So the, the concept is that, you know, this carrot has more carotenoids, more nutritional components, more milligrams of, of vitamin C per 100 grams of carrot, more whatever. That's that's what we're talking about here with, with nutrient density. And the variations are quite significant. Um, Even within the same crop, same field. Precisely. Well, not necessarily within the same field, but within the same crop type. What we understand now, we don't know for sure, but we're pretty darn sure, is that how you grow the food has a massive effect on how nutritious it is. And so, just as an example... I was talking to Joel Salton about this stuff a couple. It was a couple years ago now. Good, good name drop. That's a good one. I can drop all kinds of names. Good, we got all the elders, uh, the whole, all the leaders in the movement are backing us. You want to say it or should I? <laughs> We're coming for you, Joel Salton. We want you on the podcast too. We're fans of your work. He's a great guy. A really great guy. Definitely doesn't mind you know saying what he thinks, which I totally appreciate. Time's up. Like, say what you think, people. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we don't start standing where we believe, yeah, at, yeah, at time, no more, no more mealy mouthness. Anyway, he was talking about something that Mother Earth News did, I think it was like 10 years ago or so, where they took eggs from 10 different farms who were doing pastured poultry, and they ran those eggs through the protocol that USDA uses to define what's in an egg. And the beta carotene, that thing which causes the yolk to have color, the average level of beta carotene in an egg is something like 49 parts per million. And it's a, considered to be a nutritional compound. It's health-giving, et cetera, et cetera, good for your eyes. You know, Joel's eggs were something over 1,000, 1,052 parts per million. Wow. So you can do your statistics in your head. That's thousands of percent variation. It's not 5%, not 10%. I like to say, if you've eaten a tomato off the shelf in January from the grocery store, you know the experience of a tomato with no flavor. If That's you've one of my most beloved uh, culinary experience. If you've eaten a tomato off the vine in August, you know the experience of a tomato with flavor. According to the USDA, all tomatoes have X nutrients in them on average. And that's the, there's this massive hole in the cultural consciousness right now, which assumes that all food is the same, like all number two plastic is the same or all you know iron is the same or whatever. It's just not true. Food is not a commodity. It's not fungible with itself. Well, I mean, it's being treated like a commodity, but it's, you know, this is the, we have to break this mechanistic paradigm that's in our heads that we're sort of like locked into. As far as I'm concerned, there is a paradigm shift that needs to be undergone from this mechanistic paradigm to a biological paradigm, understanding that I think it was Descartes who said, you know, you can basically take everything apart into its component parts, study the component parts, and then understand the thing that you started with. It's like it's either him or Francis Bacon or they're part of the same uh, crew. This whole, you know, it was called the Enlightenment in Europe in the 1700s 1800s. And, you know, this idea that, that everything can be pulled apart and this components studied and therefore understood is where PhDs come from. This concept of like, just study one thing really well, and then you understand it. And, you know, I say, take an amoeba apart, study all the organelles, study the cilia, study the, you know, whatever and then put it all back together again, what do you've got? You don't have what you started with. 
You can't take life apart and then put it back together. Life operates on different principles. It's a feedback loop, multi-factor system. It's got all kinds of, it's operating on multiple levels. And we've been treating agriculture like a factory system, like a mechanistic system, and it's killing us. It's We're falling apart. The environment's falling apart culturally, spiritually, physiologically, biochemically, hormonally. We're falling apart because we're treating ourselves like a piece of plastic, and we're not. And so, you know, it all ties back in together nicely, I think, to food. And food that has flavor comes from a living ecosystem. You can't build high levels of nutritional compounds and crops without a well-functioning microbial ecosystem. You know, plants have gut flora like we do. They've evolved not to eat fertilizer. On none of the first six days did God invent fertilizer. They've evolved a symbiotic relationship with microbes. In the same way we can't digest our food without the microbes in our gut, plants can't digest their food without the microbes in their gut. You can be kept alive on an IV drip, soluble nutrients injected directly into your bloodstream. But when you are not eating food, then your gut flora dies off. The way that agriculture is working right now, adding fertilizer to the soil, fertilizer by definition is a soluble nutrient. We're basically putting our plants on an IV drip, which is really good for the people making the IV drips. It's good business for them. But then you're susceptible to infestation and disease. So it's really good for the people making the insecticides and fungicides. But plants in nature are neither getting food in the form of fertilizer or insecticides or fungicides, and they're doing just fine. They're not attacked by insects because they're healthy. And so when we can apply the model of nature to agriculture, actually it becomes more economically viable for the farmer, becomes better for the ecosystem, and the output, the food, becomes more nutritious for us. Sounds like the whole nature as measure, Wes Jackson philosophy. We should look to nature. Nature doesn't uh, leave fields bare for certain seasons. It's diverse. It's not a monoculture. Yeah. This is a, it's like if you only ate one thing, I think your immune system would be pretty unhappy. And we should imitate things that are diverse like that. Diversity makes us stronger. As I was hearing you talk, I was like, oh, Dan, come on. You're depressing me, man. You're telling me that all these things are bad. Like, let's get to the hopeful stuff and the <laughs> theories of change and how do we see exponential change? And then I was thinking, as you were talking about tomatoes, I was remembering this organic farm that I worked on in France. There's a Worldwide Opportunities and Organic Farms, which I highly recommend to anyone who can take two weeks out of their life and just go work on a farm, uh, especially for people who don't come from that background. And I remember eating the tomatoes and I had this like very visceral feeling like, oh, those are the best tomatoes ever. And that started giving me hope because once you've tasted something incredibly flavorful, you're not going to forget what food is actually supposed to taste like. So even if you eat crappy tomatoes most of the time, you know what the good tomatoes taste like, and then you know that you want those good tomatoes. So it doesn't actually take all that much to start then seeing, okay, well, I'm a consumer of food, and I'm going to want those flavorful tomatoes, and I want to know how to get those flavorful tomatoes. So maybe actually the challenge is how does the food producer who is generating more nutritious and flavorful tomatoes communicate that in an effective way and how does that create this waterfall for what did you call it octagonal bottom line like octuple I octuple said. octuple <laughs> so i mean we're talking about i mean we've got the triple bottom line which is people planet profit maybe i don't know just guessing like water retention carbon like less pollution like all maybe there are a couple more bottom lines you have in mind there's but, a number of them we can go into if you have time for it <laughs> right another just throwing multi-layered blatherings at you to maybe pull out a question on theory of change, producer preference. I mean, I think when we met you in person yesterday, you were talking to 
a brand of a food company that probably everyone would recognize. We won't name it here, but that food company really wants to put its money where its mouth is. And you were like, look, guys, this is going to happen with or without you. You can be part of leading it. So I just lay that out there to say, to really make it all happen, actually, we need to come together and say the ways in which we estimate or communicate how good something is for you must be open. Take us out of the pessimism and into the yeah, optimism. If that wasn't three softballs at me, I don't know <laughs> what would be. It gives you a dealer's <clears throat> choice. So. Yeah. So what are we doing as an organization and why are you talking to me? You know, I started off talking about my experience as a farmer and some background about other things I've done in my life. I think many of us have this deep-seated desire to have a positive impact on the world and are struggling with ways to use our, our limited human capacities to have a meaningful impact. I know I've certainly gone through that process of, you know, how can I engage in a meaningful way? How can I really be part of something systemic and beneficial? And as far as theory of change is concerned, you know, I'm of the opinion now in my much more cynical 40s than <laughs> I was in my 20s, that money is a piece of the puzzle, that money really drives a lot of things. And, you know, I think money is your vote. I think, you know, money is energy. And we, the people, have a lot of power if we want to use it together. And where we choose to use our money actually is is a great way for us to, you know, to use power, to affect change. So, you know, our organizational thought is it, it sure seems like working well with nature as a farmer improves the soil health, improves the nutritional value of the food, improves the bottom line of the of the farmer, can have a positive impact on the human health. How can we facilitate that? That seems like a really deep solution to a number of different things. We can sequester carbon at ridiculously high levels, right? We can reverse degenerative disease categorically. Um, there's all kinds of really po positive things we can do. How do we how do we drive it? And so our thought is that if we can give consumers the ability to choose that most flavorful tomato off of the shelf, that most flavorful carrot off the shelf, et cetera, if we can help them understand that this bag of carrots is bland or bitter tasting, and this bag of carrots is flavorful and aromatic and nutritious, this bag of carrots is flavorful and aromatic, your child will want to eat. This one, your child will not want to eat. If we can help consumers choose, say both of them have an organic label on them, how do you know the difference? Which one's more nutritious? You know, we've come up with this idea that giving a, people the ability to test that in real time with the flash of light, functionally, like take your smartphone out, flash the light at the bag of carrots, and tells you, burp, burp, 14 out of 100, burp, burp, to the next company's bag, 40 out of 100, and burp, burp, to the third company's bag, 80 out of 100. If you knew this company's bag was much more nutritious than that company's bag, which one would you buy? Our thought is people would buy the ones that are more nutritious. And if that company's bag starts to leave the shelf and the other company's bags are left on the shelf, then we've got an economic incentive to the supply chain telling them the stuff that's more nutritious is what people are looking for. They don't care about the aesthetic, you know, the shape anymore. They care about the flavor and the nutritional value. And so what we're doing is building that capacity. And so the technology is called spectroscopy. Every element in chemistry, copper or zinc or phosphorus or every compound, protein or carotenoids, it's got a certain chemical structure and chemistry, but it's got a certain vibration in physics. We can see, you know, Alpha Centauri, I like to say, is a star that's eight light years away. And we've never sent a probe, a you know, Voyager or anything else past the edge of the solar system, which is 12 light hours away. Alpha Centauri is eight light years away. You ask any astrophysicist, they'll tell you with great confidence, 
Alpha Centauri is 51% hydrogen, it's 48% helium, it's 1% other gases in these levels and ratios. We have great confidence. We know exactly what Alpha Centauri is made up of, even though we've never been there, because every element in chemistry is a vibration in physics. And the way we can read that is with this thing called spectroscopy. It's that you look at the, the frequency of light, and every thing has a certain frequency it vibrates at. And so if you can figure out what something is made up of eight light years away, should you be able to figure out what something is made up of eight millimeters away? Our thought is, sure, we should be able to. And so that's what we've done is we've built basically a portable, handheld, consumer-priced spectrometer that you can take to the grocery store, you can take to the farmer's market, you can flash a light at the bag of carrots, and it'll tell you, this is junk, this is also junk, this one's pretty good. So we've done this in a totally open source fashion. We're a nonprofit educational organization. And you know we've got the tools out there right now. You can purchase one. Right now, we're in the developer kit stage, which basically means you can get the tool, you can get the frequency of light bouncing back at you answer. But we don't know. And we can tell you what that frequency of light means. We can tell you it means you've got so much carotenoids, so much protein, so much, et cetera. But what we don't know is, is that good or bad? So in carrots, for example, What's the nutritional spectrum of a high-quality carrot versus a low-quality carrot? No one seems to have defined that. And then also, we're trying to figure out what are the management practices that correlate with high-quality carrots, because we don't just want to be able to go to the farmer and say, look, this is no good. We're not going to buy it. We want to go to the farmer and say, if you just do this and this, then the crop will be much higher quality. So our hope is that with economic incentives, we can support farmers and knowledge and transparent open data and you know, a nice little shiny object, a spectrometer, we can inspire a shift in management practices that will correlate with dramatic increases in carbon sequestration, because that's part of how plants feed themselves is through carbon sequestration functionally, and increases in nutrient levels, and human health and all kinds of other corollaries. So you got optimistic, which allows me to be cynical. I was trying to put you there. I mean, okay, sounds great. But here we are three white privileged males sitting around a table in a Hyatt hotel, and we're able to purchase food potentially for more, but not everyone can. And so so there's that. Once you start having those who can pay for more nutritious food, maybe it's only available to those who can afford it and not those who might most need it or be in the lower half of the sort of income bracket. So that, that concerns me. Maybe you've got an answer there. I, I think- do. Okay, good. All right, let's start on that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, as a farmer, what I found was that when I started producing crops that were healthier, my cost of production went down. When you're managing in harmony with life, it's the microbes in the soil that are doing most of the work for you. You don't need fertilizer anymore. You don't need any you know, insecticides or fungicides anymore. Um, you don't need to till the soil. In fact, tilling the soil is bad for the process. Your plants, because they're healthier, are able to realize more of their inherent genetic potential. So my experience as a farmer is that the healthier your plants are, the lower your cost of production is. So I would suggest that we should be able to outcompete conventional ag, this heavy input system, which is basically designed to facilitate profits for industry. We should be able to outcompete that system economically. I think we can. The question is, do the farmers have the incentives to? Most of the education that's coming to the farmers right now is coming from people who are trying to sell them stuff. It's not that they wouldn't make a better living if they were doing something differently. It's they don't know how, and they don't have a necessary interest. So if we can give them an economic interest, as in, we'll buy your crops if you produce high quality, and we won't if you don't, 
or we'll give you a, you know, maybe it needs to start out with a, an extra 15% on top. But once these practices get well understood and established, I suggest we're going to be able to produce more food of a higher quality at less cost. And that's, as I understand it, how it works. I'm satisfied with that answer. My just next word. One, <laughs> one, one, one more point. I mean, I just, I have, we've been talking all very, you know, in a white male privileged perspective about science and technology and things like that. But if you look at the indigenous communities globally that were doing a much more sophisticated form of agriculture than we're doing, as far as I'm concerned, we call it permaculture now. But what Native Americans are doing here 500 years ago was like light years beyond what is in a permaculture handbook. If you look at the amount of beef being produced in Iowa in you know 1491, it's more if you count buffalo as cows than we have beef being produced in Iowa now. Right? You take all the corn and soy that's being produced in Iowa and all and how many cows are being fed that corn and soy and how many pounds of beef are being produced, you know, pounds per acre, etc. of beef, they were producing more beef per acre then than we are now. They were actively managing the land, consciously managing the land. They were sequestering carbon like crazy, right? We had 40 feet of topsoil in Illinois and Iowa when the pioneers first came out and plowed the soil. That topsoil came out of the atmosphere. That rich, dark earth didn't just magically get there. It wasn't from the rocks. It came from the atmosphere through carbon sequestration, through biological pathways. And so they were not only producing more food they were having a much more positive effect on the ecosystem. We've got historical models of how this can be done very low tech. They had no wheel, they had no plow, they had no beasts of burden. We can totally do this. This is not a, it's not a question of if we can, it's just a question of will we. Which gets to my next hardball question. It's the mindset shift. I mean, oftentimes here we are sitting next to farmers, some of whom only do a very small portion of their land where they're doing no-till and cover crops. And, you know, sometimes when I sit to farmers, it's like, what What are you thinking about here? It's like, well, I feel like I'm being told that everything I've been doing and everything my dad's been doing and his dad's been doing, we're farming all wrong. And people don't like being told that what they're doing is wrong or being told how to farm. And so there's a mindset shift that needs to happen without being patronizing. We're saying what you're doing is producing less nutritious food and killing the soils. So... How do we enable that mindset shift? I think life has this thing called evolution. I've heard of that one. Which is basically, if you're in violation of life's principles, you die off. And life teaches us. And what's going on right now is we're dying off. You know, We're physiologically degenerating. We've got, I mean, serious issues with people, children with life-threatening illnesses, right? I mean, children, if you go to Iowa, you go to Minnesota- you go to some of these states and there's fourth graders, funerals for fourth graders that died from cancer. These farmers in their communities are seeing the effect of their actions on the land. They're seeing that effect on their children, right? They know that what they're doing in their gut, in their heart, in their insight, intuition, they know it's not right. And so, you know, there's a, it does require a level of humility, but we have these visceral drivers like we care about our children more than anything else. And- a lot of people have children and a lot of children are struggling. It's not just adults that get cancer these days, right? It's all these diseases that are really, I mean, we are going to die off if we don't change our practices. This is called epigenetics. They've done this work with rats and with pigs and with cows, and they've seen what happens when you, when you feed an animal poor quality nutrition 
through a couple of generations, the grandmother, the mother, and the and the child, that child, you know, has a limited capacity to function. And that's where we're at. And so that's the real driver here, as far as I'm concerned, is visceral, visceral self-interest. It doesn't matter if you care a whit about the environment, you probably care about your child. And so if we can help you do one small thing, which is to choose this bag of carrots versus that bag of carrots, you know that's going to make your child more healthy. By the way, it'll also you know, sequester carbon. Awesome. You know, by the way, it'll suck the life force out of agribusiness because you're not going to be using their products anymore. You know, I mean, we can talk about the systemic effects on agribusiness, the systemic effects on pharmaceutical, medical device industry. I personally think that we are incoherent in our ability to think, in our ability to tune into our higher natures because we're vibrating out of tune. And we can go down this rabbit hole. We probably don't have time for it. But I would suggest systemically as a culture, because we are so incoherent, because we've been eating such poor quality food for so many generations now, we can't think straight. We can't tune into our higher natures. From a vibrational harmonics perspective, we are all hardwired with the ability to tune into our higher natures if we can hold that coherence. But because our biochemistry is incomplete, we're vibrating out of tune. We're, we're vibrating like an elementary school band concert, as opposed to like a beautiful acapella choir. Right. Hot cross buns is where we are. <clears throat> no, no. Hot cross buns is fine. That's, that's, one, that's one, <laughs> one person on the piano. It's the fourth trumpet that's flat and the second flute that's sharp. And that, you know, fingernails on the blackboard dissonance, we each have a vibe based on what we eat. You are what you eat. You are either vibrating coherently or vibrating out of tune. As a community, as a culture, we're vibrating out of tune. That's why we have these issues politically of an inability to make coherent decisions because we're each so incoherent. And my understanding is that as opposed to a car, which, you know, when the brake pads wear out, you take the brake pads out and you put new brake pads in, or the muffler wears out. When the muffler wears out, you take an old muffler out and put them, that's a mechanical system. We are biological systems. We are being rebuilt on a daily basis. Four billion of your oldest, junkiest cells get disassembled. New ones get built out of the food that you eat. You do the numbers, you get a new body every six months, right? Your blood takes two weeks to replace itself. Your bones take seven years to replace themselves. But on average, you get a new body every six months. If we each started eating food that was more nutritious, in six months, we would each be much more coherent. Each of us eats food. Most people eat food. Most people use money to buy food. If we started using money to buy food that was more nutritious, to build more coherence in ourselves, to sequester more carbon in the environment, we would be in a place as a collective to make intelligent decisions. So our thought is that through enlightened self-interest, through transparent collaboration, through a nice little shiny object of a spectrometer, we come together around this question of quality in the food supply, which has all these beautiful corollary systemic benefits. All very interesting to consider there. A lot of, a lot of bait, but I'm trying to keep us focused on, the, on wrapping up the show here because we want to talk about uh, the open source ethos and how that might fit. Also, I've been hearing at Nori about handheld spectrometry from the beginning, and I want to hear about how that might fit into the system as well. It's no coincidence because just to give some shout outs to some very bright colleagues of Dan's, Greg Ostick and Dan Kane, basically 
at the beginning, we had a conversation with them and it was one of those like, yeah, cool. You guys are working on this thing. We totally see how it fits with this thing we're working on. And yeah, of course, like none of the ways in which we'll estimate and quantify carbon dioxide removal will be proprietary. Like all of this has to happen out in the open. So it's no coincidence that you've been hearing about that, Ross. And the quick carbon tool that you guys probably have been hearing about is the tool that we built that we hired Greg to build. And that tool, a little portable handheld open source spectrometer with an open source database, open source app, everything in chemistry is a vibration in physics. Soil carbon is a thing in chemistry. It's a vibration in physics. Carotenoids and carrots are a thing in chemistry, a vibration in physics. The same tool that you guys are using for the quick carbon real-time in-field assessment of soil carbon is the same tool we're using to test nutrient levels in carrots, right? We And, and it's open source. All the specs are on GitHub. The whole thing is in the commons. Our thought is this is something that needs to be held in the commons. It can't be black boxed. It can't be proprietary. It can't be controlled by a company that if we come together, we companies, organizations, universities, researchers, consumers, farmers, if we all jointly build this database, answer these questions together about which practices correlate with which results, we can give feedback loops. We can empirically assess results of the nutrient levels of the soil carbon sequestration. We have this, this core, this nut in the middle, which is the commons. And let as many companies as want to make as much money as possible by engaging in this process, right? There's no, it doesn't have to be, you know, we're going to be poor and we're going to be serving the greater good and we're better people. No, we just need to make sure that this core functionality, this collaboration node is something that doesn't belong to anybody. It's held in trust for the greater good. Yeah, we heard you speaking about that, and Christoph and I kept looking at each other, being like, "Yep, this is this is pure nori here." Yeah, we like thinking about these problems that we're all working on together. We're all on the same team. This is a if you want to get like Kropotkin on it, this is a mutualism. Like yeah. we are we are working together. I think the competitive mindset and stealth mode and things like that tend to blind people to how many others they need to collaborate for any business to be successful, for any idea to be successful, and we think that. Uh, that's just a good attitude to have. And we wish it was more common. I think it is increasingly common, especially with the way that things are going with data. Alternatively, there are also not so good things happening with data, but there are more silos, there are more proprietary systems. But I'm happy to hear you're putting the, the flag in the ground and saying that this has to be open source. Well, for our perspective, if we don't follow the model of life, we're dead. And the way life works is symbiotic, right? There's millions of species of microbes in the soil, none of whom flourishes by dominating the others. They flourish by supporting each other. Each species has its own functional skill set and capacity, and they share what their resources are, and they get resources back. I say the most selfish thing you can do is be selfless. You're happiest when everyone around you is happy. Right? You don't you don't get fulfillment by being separate from everybody else and you know having everybody else struggling. You get fulfillment by having lots of wonderful, flourishing people around you. Like It is the most selfish thing you can do to support everybody around you as much as possible. It facilitates the greatest quality of life. And this is how life works. And if we can understand that, we can use our selfishness for the greater good. It's a paradigm shift from this reductionist, top-down, you know, patriarchal, whatever you want to call it, system to this biological system. 
and you know, humans are really good at the fight or flight, the crisis management situation. And what's so exciting about this time is we're finally in a crisis. We're finally in a true existential crisis. And this is the only answer on the table is we start working together. So awesome. Let's do it. Great. Let's take the opportunity and just bust it out. We totally got this thing. <laughs> Good note to start wrapping up on. I was reminded of, I'm going to butcher this quote too. I think it's Martin Luther King Jr. The, I will work with any man to do good and with no man to do ill. And it might not even be MLK. So I'm going to get fact-checked on this <laughs> Should one. I butcher that Margaret Mead quote? Don't, <laughs> don't <laughs> underestimate the power of a small, of a small number of people. Yeah, to change the world. There you go. It's the only thing that ever has. Yeah, yeah, we we don't necessarily always agree with everyone that we collaborate on with with everything. I think that's impossible, anyways, given how intellectually diverse all these spaces are. But we try to come around a common core of things that we can do together and move the needle on. I think that's really important. So, uh, thanks for Christoph steering us into a more optimistic <laughs> conclusion there. Given that we started with the exposition, we got into the solution there. Yeah, well, I want to pass it back to Dan. Uh, throw some call outs to our listeners. Um, I mean. Maybe if, if you're a tinkerer and want to play around with this spectrometer, it's open source. Like, go break it, improve it, ship some open code and like, get on board because like, this is only going to get better and we're all in this together. But Dan, how can people listening get involved or be part of this movement? So our organization is called the Bionutrient Food Association and our URL is bionutrient, one word, dot org. The broader collaboration framework we're calling the Real Food Campaign our thought is that there has to be a structure for this collaboration to occur, which includes all these different partners and is not controlled by one entity. And so Real Food Campaign is is what we're, you know, launching. That's sort of the the home for this broader collaboration as far as we're concerned. And that will be a live URL in short order, realfoodcampaign.org. But yeah, if you just go to our URL, bionutrient.org, and start following the links, everything we're doing with the lab, all the data collection, all the I mean, all the code, everything is out there for you to look at right now. You can order a tool, you can build your own, you can look at the data, you can see what the calibrations are, you can see what the results are. We've got an annual conference called the Soil and Nutrition Conference, and we cord all of the presenters and we put all that out there for free. It's not exactly a podcast, but it's definitely a lot of good content. So yeah, bionutrient.org is a great place to start. Um, we're, we, you know, what we're doing, this work, the running the lab, the building the tool costs money. And we are violently open source. You know, we're not committed to much, <laughs> but we're committed to that, which means that we can't, that we're not taking any investment money, right? The work of doing this, of building the calibrations, of building the tool, of running the lab, of identifying these correlations is something that, that we're doing entirely out of donations. And so we are hoping that people will find that inspiring and, and make a commitment of something like $5 a month. You know, if, if that's something you have available to you and you think what we're doing is great and you don't want to buy a tool or get all complicated in the whole process, something along those lines would be deeply appreciated. We do expect that this capacity of being able to flash a light at something and figure out what's in it will be in your smartphone in a couple of years. There is no reason why it can't be. We've talked to the companies that make the chips for the smartphones. So uh, this is coming down the pike. Um, we're going to have the first consumer calibrated tool available for use at the end of this year, 2019, but that's a standalone tool. It's, you know, it's a bit clunky. It's not that big, but it's a pain to operate. Not really, but it's a lot harder than just taking your phone out, you know, and taking a picture. And so we think we're going to be at that stage in a couple of years where it's just going to be, take your phone out and take a picture. If you want to hold a house party, 
get one of our little gizmos, bring five friends over. Each of you go shopping at a different grocery store or farmer's market. Bring all your food to somebody's house, get a couple bottles of wine out, start flashing lights, getting readings, populating our data set. This is an amazing opportunity for citizen science, for you know people to hang out together, to talk about exciting things, to populate the data set. There's all kinds of ways to engage and, and build this community from the grassroots, which is where we think it really needs to be founded. So That's great. Well, thanks so much for being here with us, Dan. If you like the show, please give us a good review, share it, give us a good rating. Uh, that would help us a lot. Subscribe to our newsletter at nori.com. Anything else? Subscribe to the podcast if this is your first time listening and welcome on board. Thanks for sharing this journey. Thank cool. you very much. Thank you.